Hosea chapter 12, and we started in this chapter last week, and we're coming near to the end of this book of Hosea now, and all through the book we've been talking about how Israel was unfaithful to God, and it's mostly dealing with the northern kingdom in this book. It mentions the southern kingdom some, but they're unfaithful to God, and the image that was used at the beginning of the book was that of Hosea and Gomer. Hosea was the prophet, and Gomer was the wife he took who was unfaithful to him and you see the grief that it caused in his life and how he still loved her anyway and that's the theme of this book that as much as Israel has grieved God he still loves her and there's going to be a way of return for her someday he intends to return her to himself and we saw that all the way back in chapter 2 when he talked about how he would allure her And uh, he's going to do that someday when he comes again. He's going to draw this nation back to himself. But in this chapter, we've been talking about memorials and landmarks. And that's that's a pretty important part of the book, actually, because what we looked at last time was that uh, before the book of Hosea is written, there are actually, in a sense, two times when Israel has been dislocated from the land. And normally we think only of one when they're in captivity in Egypt. But we ought not forget, and this is prominent in this chapter, that there was a time when the man Israel, Jacob was the man whose name was changed to Israel, there was a time when he himself was dislocated. He went down to Syria where his uncle Laban was and stayed down there for 20 years, finally came back to the land. And that's important in this book because what we're dealing with here are landmarks that were left behind so that when it was time for the people to return, they could come back. And a landmark's an important thing. I mentioned last week that God one time warned the people of Israel not to remove the ancient landmarks. And uh, because if you don't have the landmark, you don't know where to come back to, do you? You don't know where to begin. And we maybe sometimes today don't think how serious this thing is because uh, a lot of us have gotten pretty used to using GPS to get where we want to go, right? And even if we haven't had that, I guess all of us, all of our lives have had maps. But can you imagine somebody in the ancient days with no map whatsoever trying to find where they're going? They had to have a landmark. And we're going to see here in just a little bit what Jacob used to find his way back to the land. But he had left something behind in the land, and we mentioned this last time, that uh, before he left, or actually as he's on his way leaving after he has uh, realized that Esau's probably going to kill him and it would be to his advantage to uh, vacate the premises (laughs) with some rapidity. And uh, there's a night there where he's sort of out camping and uh, he remembers the story where he sees uh, the, uh, the ladder and angels coming up and down out of heaven. And uh, that place, he named it Bethel, which means house of God, because he had seen that God was dealing with him there. And we mentioned last time that actually while he was there that night, God reconfirmed the covenant he had made with Abraham to Jacob. And God did that through successive generations. He gave it first to Abraham and then... He gives it to Isaac. Then after Isaac is gone, or not gone, but after Jacob has sort of separated himself from Isaac, 
he gives it to Jacob. And in doing that, he's confirming the line that he intends to work through with this promise. And so he gives him that covenant there, and he gives him this promise that he will call him back to the land someday. He intends to bring him back to the land. And Jacob set up a pillar of stone there for a memorial, for a landmark, so he could find the place again. And that was an important thing because he knew this was a place where he could talk to God. And that's an important thing. I I, uh, think that that's something we ought to pay some attention to even today in the church. And our circumstances certainly aren't the same as they had back then where you sometimes, sometimes in the Old Testament, God would designate a specific place you had to come to to deal with him. Now, we certainly don't have that today in the church age. But we ought to all of us who are saved be grateful that somebody somewhere held up a landmark to show us the way home. And you think about it, if nobody had ever told you how to get saved, if nobody had ever told you about Jesus, if nobody had ever told you about the cross or about the resurrection, where would you be? Those landmarks are important, aren't they? To be able to find the way home. I mentioned there in the prayer request to pray for the, the family of Winford Curry. He passed away last night. He was my pastor when I was a little boy. And he was the one that baptized me. And uh, I think about people like that, that when I was just a little boy, told me about the gospel. Thank God they did. There are a lot of people in this world that didn't have anybody to do that. And that's a precious thing to have somebody that will hold that up as a memorial to remember and to instruct us by. Now, that's not the only landmark that's mentioned in this chapter. We'll come to some more here in just a bit. But let me reiterate again that this place called Bethel is actually very important in this book because it just so happens that when the kingdom split apart and Jeroboam led the northern kingdom astray and he sets up his idol worship system, one of the places he sets up a golden calf is in Bethel. And that's why that's such an incredible desecration because that was a place, the the name of the place means the house of God. And it was a place that down through the Old Testament, had been a place that God had used to meet with his people. And so we've seen that all through this book, remember, referred to as Beth-Avon, which meant the house of vanity, or Beth-Arbel, which meant the house of an ambush from God, that is, that God would allow an enemy to overrun them. And uh, this happens because they've forgotten what Bethel was for. And isn't that a sad thing, that they had this place in their possession where they could have gone down there, I don't know, maybe that stone pillar that Jacob set up was still standing. But they'd forgotten what it meant and what it was for. And sometimes I feel like that's the way we are in our country today, aren't we? The old pillar is still standing, but we forgot what it's for, what it means. And turned aside to other things, maybe used it for other purposes. So, uh, We come on down here, it talks more about how he's going to let Ephraim go into captivity again, Ephraim being another name for the northern kingdom again. We left off last time at verse 9, and it says there, And I that am the Lord thy God from the land of Egypt will yet make thee to dwell in tabernacles, as in the days of the solemn feast. And uh, we talked about that last time, that what that has to do with is God had given them a feast called the Feast of Tabernacles. And it was of the seven major religious occasions or feasts that he had given them in Leviticus 23. This was the last one in the year. This was the end of the harvest. And what they would do is for a week, they would go out and dwell in booths or tabernacles. 
And uh, that was probably a pretty joyous occasion for them at, you know, when they celebrated in remembrance because it was sort of like the whole nation went on a camping trip, right? They'd come to the harvest time where work had slowed down for a little bit. They could take a little rest and enjoy that period of time. But uh, the purpose of it was that they would remember that for 40 years they dwelt in the wilderness without any homes to live in. And maybe what had happened is they had turned the occasion into such a holiday or such a good time that they'd forgotten what it meant or what the real purpose of it was. And we're a little prone to do the same sort of thing with our holidays, aren't we? I wonder sometimes how much giving of thanks there is at Thanksgiving (laughs) and how much of it's really devoted to turkey and football. I wonder how much of Christmas is really devoted to glorifying the Savior that came into the world. I wonder how much of Easter is really given to the resurrection. Even with our holidays that aren't necessarily religious, I wonder sometimes how much of our Memorial Day is really given to remembering. Because we we all like to have a good time, and sometimes we forget what the purpose of this was. Though The trouble is, they had forgotten the purpose so long that God was going to have to teach them what the purpose was. And so he says, you're going to go dwell in those tabernacles again. And like we said last time, a camping trip is only fun if you know you've got a house to come back to at the end of the week. right? You don't want to have to dwell in your tent forever uh, or for a long time as they were going to do. But let me before I go on into the next verse, which is really where the lesson starts, let me say something else about that verse. There is another little twist to it. And the Bible is such an incredible book because there are just layers within layers everywhere. And... Let me turn here just real quick to the book of Zechariah, chapter 14, and verse 18. And this is talking about the millennial kingdom. And it says, If the family of Egypt go not up and come not, that have no rain, there shall be the plague, wherewith the Lord will smite the heathen that come not up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. In the millennial kingdom, they're still going to be having the Feast of Tabernacles. And it'll be a joyous thing once again. And this nation that has been sent back into captivity, like we said Last week, the northern kingdom never really has fully returned from our captivity. The southern kingdom of Judah came back up from Babylon, but the northern kingdom never really fully came home. And they're still waiting their return. And one day they're going to return. And he says here in verse 9 that they're going to dwell in tabernacles as in the days of the solemn feast. And it is in the immediate sense talking about the judgment that will come on them. But there's also the promise that one day again they're going to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles joyfully in the kingdom. Well, this is all about return, isn't it? And we're coming back to that return. Let me come here to verse 10. He says, I have also spoken by the prophets, and I have multiplied visions and used similitudes by the ministry of the prophets. Now, before I talk about some of the details of that verse, let me remind you again that the great image that is used in this book is that of an unfaithful wife. And there's a picture of the relationship between God and Israel as a marriage. And you know what they always tell you, the marriage counselors and people like that, that one of the most important things to having a healthy marriage is communication. Well, that's what he's telling him here. I tried to communicate with you. I sent you the message. I didn't leave you guessing about what I wanted. You know, uh, Israel had nobody to blame but herself for her trouble with God because God had been utterly clear with Israel about what the covenant was supposed to be. He had 
and let me emphasize this again, when he gives them the Ten Commandments, it is not merely God setting down a set of rules. It is a covenant. The people agreed to the Ten Commandments. It was, it was a deal they made. It was like not, Israel was not forced into this. They could, I suppose, have walked back into Egypt or something else if they wanted to, but they agreed to this covenant. And they broke every term of the covenant. And it wasn't as if God was unclear about what the terms of the covenant were. The law is incredibly detailed, so detailed that a lot of people have trouble (laughs) reading all the way through it because there are so many details in the law about what they were supposed to do. And uh, he hadn't only given them the law. When they broke the law, he started to send prophets. As the nation fell further and further into idolatry, and to disobedience, it isn't as if all of a sudden one day God just rains judgment down on him. He says, I warned you and warned you and warned you over and over and over again. I spoke by the prophets. I multiplied visions. I used similitudes by the ministry of the prophets. That is, uh, things that were symbolic or illustrative kind of things. One of the Great examples of that is the marriage of Hosea and Gomer, right? He, he gives them not just words, but an image to look at that ought to bring the thing home because how else better could you understand the grief of God over the disobedience of Israel than to put it into the human realm and make somebody understand what it would be like to have an unfaithful spouse and, the, and how terrible that would be. He had done other things. You remember Isaiah uh, had to walk around naked and barefoot for three years one time. And... There were a lot of others that hadn't happened yet when Hosea was written, but would happen later. Uh, probably, well, Jeremiah, remember, had to make a yoke to indicate the yoke that they would have put on them. And Ezekiel probably had more of these sort of physical illustrations maybe than anybody else. He had to cut his hair and shave his beard and divide it into three parts. He had one time to draw a picture of Jerusalem on a tile. And he, he had a, a lot of different things that he had to do. God, in other words was bringing the thing down on their level. There wasn't anybody who could say, well, I heard a message from God, but I'm not a scribe and I can't read, so I can't understand. He brought it down to the level of everybody in the nation so they could understand it. There didn't, there wasn't anybody who had any excuse. And so he says, I kept telling you, I kept telling you, I kept telling you. Verse 11, is there iniquity in Gilead? Surely they are vanity. They sacrifice bullocks in Gilgal. Yea, their altars are as heaps in the furrows of the fields. Now, we need to spend a little time on this verse to understand what we mean by Gilead and Gilgal. We've talked about both of these places before in this book, and I mentioned last week that one of the things this 12th chapter does is it sort of ties together a lot of uh, different threads that we've seen throughout the book. And both of these places, Gilead and Gilgal, have figured into the story of this book so far. Gilead, we mentioned, was that city that was uh, uh, kind of a frontier sort of city. It was across the Jordan. It was in the, remember there were two and a half tribes that settled on the east side of the Jordan because they didn't want to go into the promised land. And this was in that part of the country. It was a city of refuge. It was one of the places where somebody who had inadvertently killed somebody else could flee for refuge. And we mentioned that earlier in the book that one of the complaints God had about that city was that uh, it had it was full of iniquity. And 
from the context of what we saw there earlier in the book, you get the idea that there were probably people fleeing to Gilgal for refuge who didn't have a right to refuge, right? The, you, you, you didn't have a right to a city of refuge if you killed somebody intentionally. But that's the idea. It appears there were people who were being sheltered there and perhaps had even paid off the priests <laughs> to, to give them shelter. And what they'd done is they'd abused that provision of God's mercy that they had in a city of refuge. And uh, we mentioned when we talked about that city earlier in the book that uh, later on when Jeremiah prophesied, he said, is there no balm in Gilead? Because Gilead was famous for this balm that was used as a sort of a healing thing. And the context of that is that by the time Jeremiah prophesied, Gilead had already been conquered. There was no more balm in Gilead. And there was no more help from Gilead. This was a place where sometimes the armies would gather on the frontier when enemies were coming. This is, this is where uh, uh, Gideon had his army gathered together, was out in that area. And uh, so he says, If there are iniquity in Gilead, surely they are vanity. Now another thing Gilead was, was a landmark. It's a memorial. One of the reasons they tended to gather at Gilead was because there's a big mountain there and it's easy to see from a long way off, right? And if you don't have GPS and you don't have maps, a mountain is a very important landmark. Whatever's a big, tall mountain, you head for the mountain. And as it turns out, that was exactly what Jacob did when he came home. In Genesis chapter 31... Let me refresh your mind just a little bit about the story here. Remember, the reason that Jacob had fled the land was because uh, his brother wanted to kill him. And so he flees the land. He goes down there to where his uncle Laban lives. And he's down there for 20 years. And you remember, they, they made this agreement. He fell in love with one of uh, Laban's daughters, Rachel. And he made an agreement with him to work seven years to have this woman as his wife. And he worked the seven years, and Laban tricked him and gave him his other daughter, <laughs> who apparently nobody wanted to marry. And so he had to figure out a way to pawn her off on somebody. And so that's what he did. He got this other wife, Leah, and he still wanted Rachel, so he went ahead and married Rachel and worked another seven years. So he worked 14 years for these two wives, and he only even wanted one of them. And then he worked six more years for livestock down there as part of Laban's. And finally he got upset with Laban. He takes off. He, there's, there's a whole story about uh, they made an agreement about which cattle he could have, and Jacob was uh, smart enough to sort of work that out so that he, it worked out to his favor. And Laban was upset with him. And at this point God called him back home. In Genesis 31, verse 11, and the angel of God spake unto me in a dream, saying, Jacob, and I said, Here am I. And he said, Lift up now thine eyes, and see all the rams which leap upon the cattle are ring-straked, speckled, and grizzled. For I have seen all that Laban doeth unto thee. I am the God of Bethel, where thou anointedest the pillar, and where thou vowedest a vow unto me. Now arise, get thee out from this land, and return unto the land of thy kindred. And let me say this first about... Um, Jacob, you see the grace of God on this man's life because if it had been me in God's place and I'd seen what Laban did to him, I would have said what Laban did to you was pretty bad. He did cheat him. <laughs> he misled him about the wife and did some things about the cattle. 
but I would have said, yeah, you get what you deserve. <laughs> right? <laughs> because you remember what you did to your brother and what you did to your father down there where you intentionally deceived them. But God had chosen this man, and he showed mercy to this man. And he says, he reminds him that he's the God of Bethlehem. He reminds him 20 years ago that he anointed a pillar back down there in the promised land before he left. And so God sets his GPS for him. <laughs> he says, remember that pillar. It's time for you to go back to that pillar. Time for you to go home. Get out from this land. Return to your kindred. He has to repeat a journey that Abraham had made long before Abraham had come up from this country, hadn't he? And uh, God had called him out of that land. He says, now it's your turn to come out of the land. Now, he leaves. And... Uh, Look at verse 21. It says, So he fled with all that he had, and he rose up and passed over the river and set his face toward the Mount Gilead. That's his point of reference because he had set up a stone in Bethel for a landmark, but you can't see that stone from Syria or from a long way off. You can see Gilead from a long way off. And he knows if he can find Gilead, that'll get him close, and then he can find the pillar of stone at Bethel from there. And so that was the place he used for his landmark was Gilead. And he takes off toward Gilead. And finally, Laban catches up with him at Gilead. Well, I guess Laban was smart enough to use the same landmark, right? <laughs> and so he follows him right down the line. But the point is that Gilead, Mount Gilead, is his landmark. That is his indication of his way home. And this is everything for this man because the promised land, the Canaan land, is his possession by right from God that he has ordained. And in order to get back to his possession, to the place he belongs, to his inheritance, the landmark, the thing he points himself, is toward Gilead. Now, we come down here to Hosea 12, verse 11 again, and it says, Is there iniquity in Gilead? Surely they are vanity. See, they've taken this place that was supposed to be the landmark to guide a man home from captivity. And here's the idea. Now they're going into captivity, but they've ruined the landmark. How do they come home? <laughs> when they have perverted the thing that was supposed to lead them home. And then it says next in that verse, they sacrifice bullocks in Gilgal. Now, we've talked about Gilgal before because it was also an important city. That was the place they came to when they first crossed the Jordan River to come into the Promised Land. And uh, it became a sort of a national rallying point for a while. That was uh, where uh, Saul was anointed, or where Saul was coronated, I guess. That was the city that uh, became sort of a, a founding place for them, in a sense. Just like in our country, we would... Uh, give a special honor to a place like Lexington and Concord where the first battles of the revolution were fought. Uh, this was a place that had great significance to them. And uh, when they first crossed that land, or first crossed the river, Joshua, and this is in Joshua chapter 4, set up a landmark there. If you remember what happened when they crossed the Jordan River, God parted the river and the priests, or the, the Levites and the priests that came out with the Ark of the Covenant went out and stood in the middle of the riverbed. And as long as they stood there, God kept the waters backed up and the nation walked by on dry land. And there were two memorials. Joshua put a memorial out there in the river where the priests were 
and set up 12 stones, one for each tribe. And then the priest got out. And once they got on the other side, he set up 12 stones uh, on the riverbank there at Gilgal where they first came in. And it says the reason he did that, let me read here 5, 6, and 7 of Joshua chapter 4. It says, And Joshua said unto them, Pass over before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of Jordan, and take you up every man of you a stone upon his shoulder, according to, unto the number of the tribes of the children of Israel, that this may be a sign among you, that when your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, What mean ye by these stones? Then ye shall answer them that the waters of Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord when it passed over Jordan. The waters of Jordan were cut off, and these stones shall be for a memorial unto the children of Israel forever. That was the idea. There was supposed to be a pile of stones here at Gilgal. And when they came by to visit, and I don't know, maybe they came by as tourists like we do sometimes to important sites in our history. And the children would see those pile of stones and they'd ask their fathers, what are they there for? And their fathers would explain to them the story of what happened at this place. That the reason they were able to come into this land is because God had parted the river and allowed them to come in. And they're supposed to remember that. It's a landmark. But they've forgotten their landmark. (laughs) Somewhere along the line, I guess, the fathers had quit telling the children what this pile of stones meant. And I don't know if the pile of stones was still there and people walked by and didn't know what it was for. But they lost the sense of the importance of the thing. And this is what happens in a nation that forgets where God has brought them from. They begin to lose their sense of gratitude toward God. And what God is telling them is, if you don't remember that it was me who brought you here, I'll take you back out. And you'll have to find your way to return again. But that's what he says there. They sacrificed bullocks in Gilgal. See, he says, if I take you out of this land and you need to find your way back, you've perverted Gilead. You're sacrificing to false gods down there by my pile of stones that showed that I brought you into the land. He said, how are you ever going to find your way home again? They're in a dire situation, aren't they? Well, they're a lot like our country today, aren't they? They've forgotten where they came from, forgotten what God did for them. And when you begin to forget those things, how do you ever find your way home again? See, that's the problem we face, I think, in America today that's different maybe from what it was in generations past. There have always been lost people. There have always been sinful people. But the message of the gospel was always preached. The landmark stood there. People could find their way home. Nowadays, people have given up on the landmarks. And that's why it's so hard for people to ever find their way home, to find their way to where they're supposed to be. He goes on at the end of verse 11, says, Yea, their altars are as heaps in the furrows of the fields. Now, remember, these memorials that God had instructed them to set up were supposed to be landmarks, but they've been setting up altars all over the place to all sorts of false gods. In every high place, in every grove, the Bible talked about just everywhere, they were setting up altars. And remember, the the reason why they're using all these idol gods is mostly because they think it'll bring them prosperity 
and this is an agricultural society, right? They, they want their crops to grow. They want their, their livestock to, to, uh, to prosper. And so, uh, they're worshiping all these false gods and setting up all these false altars because they think it'll make the land more fruitful. And the last part of this verse is one of those things where you have to have a little understanding of agriculture to understand what it means. Because he set up all these altars to try to make their land prosperous. He says, there is heaps in the furrows of the fields. Now, guess what you don't want in your fields if you're going to go plow? <laughs> Big piles of rocks. <laughs> and he says, you've set up your altars all over the place that you thought were going to make you prosperous, but they're what's going to keep you from being prosperous. They're what's going to break your plows. And they're what's going to cause you misery and keep you from being able to attain the blessing of God in your life. The thing that you thought was going to prosper you is going to cause your undoing. I mean, if you want the image there, can you imagine somebody that wanted to fertilize their field instead of putting out fertilizer, just sowed it with gravel? <laughs> That's kind of the idea of what's done, what's been done here is they've, in trying to make themselves prosperous, they've ruined themselves. It goes on here in verses 12 and 13. These verses are kind of connected together, and this is why I mentioned the importance of the fact that um, Jacob going down to Syria and coming back is, is in a way a picture of the later captivities of the country. It says, And Jacob fled into the country of Syria, and Israel served for a wife, and for a wife he kept sheep. And by a prophet the Lord brought Israel out of Egypt, and by a prophet was he preserved. Now, let's put those two verses together. What we have in the case of Jacob is this man who went down to Syria, and he served for a wife. Now, there is a, there's a theory. Well, it's more than a theory. There's, there's uh, some pretty distinct scripture to back this up. That the reason Jacob went down to Syria was because he didn't want a wife like his brother had married. Now, the reason I say... I'm not, I'm not entirely sure that it was what he wanted. It was what his mother wanted, actually, right? <laughs> because his mother was very upset with, with the uh, woman that Esau had married. She was a native of that land and worshipped all these false gods. And so the idea, apparently, was that he could go down there and find somebody who was not a worshiper of false gods. Well, how'd that work out? <laughs> it turned out that they're still worshiping false gods down in Syria. And... Maybe that ought to be a little bit of a warning to us not to be overly nostalgic about old times, right? Because uh, they, uh, when Abraham came down here to this land, he and his family are worshiping the one true God. But remember, Abraham's people were all idol worshipers. He'd grown up around all that. And part of the story about what happens when Laban catches up with Jacob there at Gilead is uh, he's, he's got several accusations to make, but the biggest one is that they have taken his household gods, which was true. <laughs> this wife that Jacob fell in love with, this Rachel, when she left, had taken Laban's household gods with her. And when Laban begins to search, he, she hides those things there. And so the idea is that uh, he had apparently, in, his idea was he would go down to Syria and escape the wickedness or the false gods and what he ended up doing is bringing the false gods into his own household. Now, that's a powerful lesson right there, isn't it? 
you see, what he had done in going up there to find a wife that he thought would be more suitable, he had introduced a whole new strand of idol worship into the promised land that hadn't been there before. And he brought this down where he was. Now, he had the reason he comes back, and this is an important thing to connect these two verses in Hosea together. The reason he comes back is because God instructs him to, right? Now, there's probably good reason to think that he wanted to leave because things were getting a little hot down there in Syria. I think he had finally got to the point where he was more scared of Laban than he was of Esau, right? And uh, he's caught between the rock and the hard place, and I guess he decided to, the rock was falling, he decided to head back toward the hard place. So he comes back down there. Esau, Esau, Yeah, well, he thinks, yeah, Esau's maybe had 20 years to calm down. Uh, as it turned out, Esau was still upset. <laughs> but, that's, but that's a whole other story for another time. <laughs> anyway, they... Uh, God told him to come back down there. He, he'd gone down there and served for a wife, and uh, he had come back. Verse 13, by a prophet the Lord brought Israel out of Egypt. By a prophet was he preserved. That prophet, of course, was Moses, right? He sends Moses down there to bring the people out, and Moses guides them and leads them up to the border of the promised land. And God finally, uh, remember, he didn't let Moses go into the promised land, but he let Moses lead them all the way there. Now, we come back to this question, how will they come back home now? God led Jacob back home. And God led Moses back home. But how do they come home now? And just like I told you last week, I'm going to skip ahead and kind of I'll give you a little spoiler warning here. In chapter 14, the first verse is, O Israel, return unto the Lord thy God, for thou hast fallen by thine iniquity. See, it's not about returning to the land, it's about returning to God. And that's an important distinction we need to make because there are a lot of Jews today who are returning to the land. Most of them are not returning to God. And we need to distinguish between those two things because the real return of the people that results in the setting up of the kingdom is not when they just return to the land, it's when they return to God. And you can't short-circuit that. You can try, but it won't really work. He goes on there in verse 14 and says, Ephraim provoked him to anger most bitterly. Therefore shall he leave his blood upon him, and his reproach shall his Lord return unto him. He holds Ephraim guilty with a blood guilt. Now, I don't know how, we don't have a whole lot of time to get into chapter 13, but we may get into it just a little bit. There's a verse down toward the end of chapter 13 that is one of the really key verses of this whole book. And in that verse, we'll find the place where we transcend Old Testament prophecy and get into the real message about the Messiah and about what the real solution is at the end. And in verse 14, he says, I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. O death, I will be thy plagues. O grave, I will be thy destruction. Repentance shall be hid from mine eyes. And that, of course, is talking about none other than Jesus Christ. Because he is the only one in the end that can ransom somebody from the power of the grave. All the bulls and goats in the world, they can... Uh, cover sin for a year or for a season, 
but they will never ransom somebody from the power of the grave. The only way that could be done was by the blood of a perfect man. And this is what he's communicating to this people. We'll spend more time next, uh, next time probably. We won't get too far here into chapter 13, I don't think, tonight. But we'll, we'll spend more time looking at this probably next time. That this is what the book is really driving toward the whole time anyway. Is that for what Ephraim has done, the sin she has committed, just saying to her, I love you, and returning her to the land is not going to be enough to fix the problem. Do you remember what Hosea had to do back there in chapter 3 when he finally for the last time reclaims Gomer and takes her home and restores the household? And it, you know, I think you, you get the image that probably she had come and gone and come and gone. But when the thing finally gets fixed, remember what he had to do? He had to go buy her. <laughs> because she had sold herself on the slave market. And Israel has come and gone and come and gone. Like I said last week, we usually mention three captivities of Israel. They uh, went down into Egypt, then they uh, uh, go down here into Babylon, the southern kingdom does, into Babylon. And then now after Christ was crucified, they were scattered. And we talk about three times they were moved from the land and three times they returned. Really, Jacob, in a sense, makes a fourth one. They've come and gone and come and gone. God has promised them that if they would obey Him in the land, they'd be blessed. When they did obey Him, they were blessed. They were prospered. But what we find is that they cannot, in the end, ever follow Him the way they should because the sin nature goes deeper than any other covenant or promise that could be made other than the one made in the blood of Christ. You can't deal with the problem until you get to the very root of it. You've got to plow it all the way out. And what God says is, because of what these people have done, they have sold themselves under sin so far, and this, by the way, doesn't just apply to the nation of Israel, but it applies to every single human being on this earth, Jew or Gentile or whatever you are. We're so far sold under sin that the only solution in this world is to have a ransom made. It's the only way you could do it. And uh, you have a ransom made to bring them back. There, There is, in a sense, uh, in some of the other captivities, like when you come back from Egypt, there is, a, there is in a, a sense, a, a ransom involved there. But it's a type, it's a figure. What was needed was a payment for sin. And until the sin was paid for, they could never dwell prosperously in the land. And that's what he's communicating to them here. That 14th verse of chapter 12 is, Ephraim provoked him to anger most bitterly. Therefore shall he leave his blood upon him and his reproach shall his Lord return unto him. There's a blood guilt. And do you know what the payment is for blood guilt? It has to be paid in blood. And so that's what he's communicated to him. Now, thank God that the message we'll get to by the end of chapter 13 is that God does intend to make a ransom for this nation. Now, that part of, uh, down around the middle of the next chapter, down around verse 9 is where he really starts getting into that part of it. We have a few more things here in chapter 13 before we get that. We may just look at a little bit of this in a, a sort of an introduction tonight. 
in the beginning of the chapter, verse 1, it says, When Ephraim spake trembling, he exalted himself in Israel, but when he offended in Baal, he died. <laughs> right? There was a time when Ephraim was humble. That's what the idea is of speaking trembling. They were in awe of God, and he was exalted. Ephraim did have that exalted position. Uh, other than Judah, Ephraim was sort of a leading tribe. As a matter of fact, there was there was a time when Ephraim was probably uh, ranked higher than Judah before you know, David becomes king. But when he offended in Baal, he's lost his position. He's turned the wrong direction. And verse 2, it says, And now they sin more and more, and have made them molten images of their silver, and idols according to their own understanding, all of it the work of the craftsmen. They say of them, Let the men that sacrifice kiss the calves. <laughs> and there's a very memorable expression tonight, and yeah. it's probably about as far as we'll go tonight. That's because I want to, I want to take a minute to look at that verse. That's a good place to end because that's something that, that'll stick with you a little bit. He talks again about how they've made these idols, made them molten images. And it says they made idols according to their own understanding. That's a pretty interesting expression, even before we get to the thing about kissing the calves, isn't it? They made idols according to their own understanding. Can I say to you that I thank God that I have a God who's bigger than me and I can't understand him. If I could understand, if, if I were to make a God of my, with my own hands, and if I tried to do that, it wouldn't be very pretty. If I tried to, because, because I'm not the artistic type. If I tried to make a molten image, it'd come out looking like a, a, a stick cow, right? <laughs> At best. <laughs> Well, you know, they, the, 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 uh, the image of a cow was important in a lot of those ancient religions because uh, then, as, as now, in my opinion, beef is the king of meat, right? It's, <laughs> beef is, uh, yeah, it's expensive. It's, you know, uh, their cattle are bigger than goats or sheep or whatever. It's a symbol of prosperity. And it tastes good. <laughs> so, so it's... <laughs> that's right. There's there's value to that, and so um, even even in the, the the legitimate system of sacrifice that God had made, the highest of the whole burnt offerings was a a young bullock, right? And there were other things you could offer, but that was sort of the the pinnacle of the thing. And uh, so a lot of these a lot of those ancient religions would make images of things of what it was they wanted to prosper. So they thought if they if they had a god who was going to prosper their cattle, they thought that god might look like a cow. Uh, which is sort of an interesting way of thinking, isn't it? But, but if you had somebody who was a master craftsman, you know somebody who really knows what they're doing with, with a sculpture, um, they don't just sort of slap the thing together. They, they really understand how to do it. They understand, they understand shapes and, and images and, and the depths and textures of things of how they're supposed to be put together. And uh, that man who can make it actually has a lot of understanding, doesn't it? Somebody who can make a sculpture that really looks like a calf has a lot more understanding of what a cow looks like than I do. <laughs> now, I've seen a lot of cows, but I've never thought about it as much as somebody who can make a sculpture of one. You understand what I mean? And uh, so he has, these people had made a calf according to their own understanding, and they made pretty good-looking calves, probably. But you know what they couldn't do? They couldn't make that calf move, <laughs> and they can't make it walk around, and they can't make it eat grass. They couldn't make it make a sound. They couldn't do any of those things because they had made it according to their own understanding. 
and the very pinnacle of their own understanding could make nothing more than a shadow or a picture of a thing that God had made and is very insufficient in comparison to what God had made, isn't it? And absolutely opposite of what he told them to do. Yeah. No graven image. That's right. And they got punished repeatedly for that. Yeah. I, I guess we're the same way, yeah. maybe on a smaller scale, maybe. I, yeah. I don't know, but... Similar. And uh, man with all his understanding and all his advancements in technology today still can't make a cow. <laughs> Not a real one. <laughs> they figured out how to they figured out how to clone them and they think that they've made a great achievement and you want to look at them and say, Well, God sort of did all the work for you. You're just making a reproduction of something that he already made. It's just a copy of something that he already made. It's not as impressive as you think it is, I think. Cool, but it's but you've, all you've done is what you can do according to your own understanding. And what good is a God that you can understand? If you know everything about your God, if a man makes a sculpture of a calf, he knows a lot more about that sculpture than the sculpture knows about him, doesn't he? Yeah. We were trying to be our Satan. Yeah, that's right. And so if that's the case, it's, it comes back to the same old thing that we talk about in Romans, how they worship the creature more than the creator. And it doesn't make any sense, does it? I thank God that there's one who made me that I can worship and not one that I made. He made me according to his understanding. <laughs> and that's an incredible thing to think about. The Bible says we're fearfully and wonderfully made. And modern medical science is still far from unlocking all the secrets of what God put into our body when he made us. Yeah. They uncover hundreds of new things about the human body yeah. every day. And they're, constant, the yeah. and they're constantly finding out how wrong they are about yeah, things that yeah, they yeah. used to tell us, right? <laughs> yeah. So he says that we ought to, that how foolish it is that they're worship, worshiping things that they made according to their own understanding. It was all the work of the craftsmen. Well, they should have worshipped worship the craftsmen instead of the calf, shouldn't they? If they were going to be so silly. But he says, let, they say, let the men that sacrifice kiss the calves. And that was the idea. That apparently that was a ritual that they actually engaged when they went down there and made sacrifices. What they would do is go kiss that calf. And they thought, there's something about humanity that wants a religion that appeals to the senses instead of to the spirit. And the natural man's like that, right? Have you ever noticed how, how almost all religions eventually come to, they, uh, you have to light a candle or, or pray at a particular shrine or touch a statue? Even religions like Buddhism, which in its sort of beginning was, was very detached from materialism altogether, you know, that, that you thought everything is God. But after a while, they've got all their monks and their shrines and their temples and they go rub the Buddha's belly and all that sort of thing. Because man, apart from God, is a sensual creature. All we have to connect with with the world is our five senses if we're not connected to God, right? And that's what he says they've done. They've just, they go kiss the calves, but they never have fellowship with God. And uh, you can go to, down to Wall Street right now, there's a big bull <laughs> out there in the street. <laughs> people go down there. Is there a big bear as well? <laughs> no, I don't know if there's a bear. There's a bull down there. People, people go down there and touch the bull. <laughs> well, we haven't come so far, have we, really? Because they talk about the bull market yeah. and the bear market. But uh, so that's, that's where they are. They've given themselves over to this idolatry. 
Now, we'll stop there for tonight. Lord willing, we'll come back next week and talk about what this means. We have this warning again in verse 3 about how quickly they will pass away and what God's going to do to them. But hopefully next time we'll get down there to verse 9 and the verses following where it will talk about what it is that God intends to do to deliver and rescue this nation.